Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, and today we have a return, one of our more popular guests, Mr. Adam Coleman. Adam, it's good to see you. Welcome to The Common Bridge. Thank you for having me again. Adam has a very interesting backstory. He's had an interesting career in technology. And his views on the social aspects of the United States and around the world are quite interesting. He's become a prolific columnist. He's become an opinion maker. You're going to find his work more and more prevalent. And, of course, his book is something that I believe is a must read. So, Adam... Welcome to the Common Bridge, and uh, we have a chance to chat about just about anything. How are you, by the way? I'm doing well. I'm getting over a little something, but uh, so if I cough, you know, that's why. But in general, I'm doing okay. That's good to hear. Well, we're sitting here today waiting for uh, snowmageddon and uh, <laughs> Christmas season, and one we're looking at with fear and one hopefully with joy. This podcast will probably air in a few weeks from today. Adam, one of the things that you write about so eloquently is about some of the press coverage. One of your columns was titled, I don't know if you're the one that gets to write the titles, but I like it. It's called The Mainstream Media Lied to You About Conservatives. What made you write this column? Um, actually, it was it was something that sparked from a conversation I had on a on a different podcast. And we, you know, we were just talking and you know, when you have these different interviews, it sparks different ideas. Uh, and it made me want to actually just write openly about part of my, I don't want to say transformation, but part of my awakening about certain aspects about the media and, you know, the lies and exaggeration about certain things that were happening around me. And so, yeah, that's kind of what initially sparked it. Yeah, You write eloquently about how Republicans in particular and conservatives in general have been labeled racists as a way to basically obviate anything they might say. So I guess two parts to that question, are they racist? And does that mean we should ignore them? So I always try to say that there's no political side that has a monopoly on racists, right? But the other part is that the more I've learned about conservatism, there's nothing within conservatism that encourages racism, right? Mm-hmm. And someone who calls himself a conservative, who is a racist, to me, isn't a principal conservative. So can someone be a quote unquote conservative and be a racist? Absolutely. But I will say that my encounters with conservatives who like me, who don't like me, you know, who disagree with me, have uh, overwhelmingly been cordial. Not something that I would consider highly racial or anything of that nature. And actually, I find, I find it to be the opposite. I find that conservatives feel very restrained about talking about race. They're unable to because of that stigma. And I think if we want to have a healthy conversation about race, you know, and, and lots of people on the left say, we need to talk about this, we need to address it, 
then people should feel comfortable asking odd questions, you know, uncomfortable questions. And oftentimes what ends up happening is, and, and it's not something that um, I'm not shaming people for or anything like that, but like I wrote a book about race. So it sparks the conversation. And so they feel like, you know, I'm sorry for asking this, you know, they're like, oh, can I, can I ask you this question? Because, you know, they're not able to. And then I respond by giving them an answer, or at least my opinion of an answer. But for them, it's kind of like, you know, it's a relief to actually be able to talk to someone who is Black, and they've had certain questions, or they've had, you know, an opinion, they've wanted to express something, but they don't want to be taken as, I'm not saying this because I'm racist, you know, they don't want all these qualifiers they just want a good faith conversation with someone. And oftentimes in person, it turns into a little bit of like a, a therapy session, uh, so to speak, because they finally get it off the chest. They feel a little bit better that they can like talk to someone about it and not have to, to hide. And one of the things I, I think that you're very consistent about is let's have conversation and let's deal with our experiences. I know one of the things that I like to do, somebody's going off about, well, this group of people, they all think this way and they act that way and so forth. And I'll stop them and I'll say, well, how many people do you personally know that act like that or talk like that? And most of the time it's, well, I don't know anybody. Okay. All right. So let's stop them there. Well, how do you know they exist? Well, I saw it on XY channel I said, okay, do you trust the reporting and the editing? And that's when we start to have a real conversation, like what you're being presented, how real is it? And you write about going to a conservative convention called Turning Point. And I believe that you had some of that same experience, if I'm understanding your writing. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually called America Fest. It's uh, thrown by Turning Point's organization. I went last year as a guest, someone Part of the organization got me tickets and my wife and I went and yeah, it was a cordial event. Basically the, it's it, to me, it's, I laugh because it was exactly what you would expect. Conservatives talking about conservative stuff, <laughs> you know, and like race barely was a thing of any sort of topic that they even would bring up. Most of the stuff was, you know, exactly what you would expect. And if the idea is that and, and this is the perspective coming from uh, certain people who are on the left. If the idea is that race and racism is of a central concern for conservatives, then how come they don't ever talk about it? There must be some sort of way, like if it's so central to their identity, to their being, yet they have no organizational way of ever discussing it, they don't do it publicly – so what, there's some sort of secret conservative meeting where they're getting together to be racist? I, so like, you know, as someone who talks to people all the time, I'm around uh, people who are on the right uh, a lot more today. And it's just kind of like, no, it's not a, it's not a thing. It really isn't. If, if you come across some racist conservative, that's the one guy. But it's not a, it's not a, central, it's not a central matter for, for the right wing, to be honest with you. Well, well, we went through a period on the news reporting where we had commentators, talking heads on the left saying, well, this is a dog whistle to all the racists. And I remember like some of the extrapolations that they made 
and, and it didn't make any sense to me. And then when I kept looking for the dog whistles, it was all the people that were critical of the right and critical of conservatives. They were the only ones that could hear the dog whistle. And so nobody else could hear it. And now that that narrative has kind of ran its course, and I think it's moved on from this point. But I agree with you that racism can come from any place in the political spectrum. And as a person that tends to look at outcomes like yourself, I get enraged when I look at young minds that might be predominantly people of color in an urban city that they're not getting a good education and they're locked in there by teachers unions. And, you know, I don't want to bash any particular city. That to me is racist. When you don't give a kid a chance because you don't want to give them a voucher, you don't want to let them have access to private education, could really lift them up. That to me is a racist act. And that's tends to be coming more from the left than the right. I don't know if you agree or if I'm actually making any sense here or not. You, you're definitely making sense. I will say that it's difficult when it, when it comes to policies and actions that we, we want to call racist, because I go back and forth between, is it racist if it's accidental or only when it's malicious? You know, so it's, that's always a tough one for me. It could also be racist if just no one cares. And no one cares specifically because of the demographic. Sure, that could be that could definitely be racist. I find more of the malicious type these days when it comes to negative outcomes. Not even necessarily negative outcomes. Condescending the creation of uh, certain outcomes because of condescending mindsets. You know, when you get rid of certain educational standards because you don't believe that black people can catch up to it. Like to me, giving them a fake B on a test score just so they can pass the way through, you're not helping them, right? It's it's a very condescending act. It's a, it's a, a racist act because you believe because of their skin color, because of their racial identity, that they cannot achieve a B like anybody else. You have to make one up for them. You have to just pass them along, move them along. And I think that's that's a major problem. That's what we're seeing a lot more today under the guise of progressivism. I had some interesting guests on my show talking about uh, various agendas, and I haven't researched this, but one of the comments on my Substack page was a person that represented that both he and his wife worked in public school system on the West Coast. And they said part of it's funding that if they put initiatives in place that raise the performance of certain schools, now they're not at risk and they get less money. So it's almost like a money machine to keep kids from learning. And of course, if they can't learn, they can't get the jobs that we have today. And therefore, it continues that cycle of despair and dependency. And that's clearly a fixable problem and one that doesn't need to exist. Right. And that and that goes to the short-sightedness of government. And actually, it's kind of the short-sightedness of how we fix American issues. You just throw money at it. And we like to say, oh, well, you know, these, these failing schools, they just don't have enough money. Just keep giving them money. And, uh, and this actually goes to one of my my pet peeves when it comes to the far left, who tries to say the reason that, let's say, uh, a poor black urban uh, area has failing schools with stuff that doesn't work and 
and doesn't have the resources like other school districts is because there's just not enough money. And the reason there's not enough money is because there are uh, the property taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Because not enough people own. And they always overlook that. And for many of these places, they get state money, they get federal money. <laughs> like they don't just get money from property taxes and houses. And they do that purposefully. They don't want people to see that a lot of these school districts are just wastelands of money. It's just public corruption. And they don't want people to focus on that. They think if we just keep doing the same thing over and over, just give them more and more money, that it eventually work itself out. But no corrupt system works itself out by giving it more of, of the of what created it for, uh, to be corrupt in the first place. More money. And some of the some of the poorest areas have so much wealth, you know, in, in the form of government subsidies, government government money that's being thrown at it on a consistent basis. And so I don't have an objection to the public sector doing things. I don't have an objection mm-hmm. to them stepping in to educate kids, provide health care, you know, pave roads, have public safety and the like. But it's value for money. And one of the things that I look at is the ratio of people delivering the service versus the overhead required to manage it. And Mm -hmm. my personal experience with some of the philanthropic issues that we're engaged with, it's not the people on the front lines. It's not the teachers not caring or, or it's the teachers doing the best they can with the resources they got in the system that they're in. And it's not that the kids don't want to learn. They do want to learn, but they don't know how to learn. And yet Mm -hmm. that money never makes it into that classroom, nor is there any expected performance from it. And that to me is the crux of, to your point, public corruption. It's great. Take the tax dollars, do something, give me some value for it. Churn out kids that are ready to enter the workforce, enter college and become the engineers and the scientists and the healthcare providers and the welders and the carpenters that we need. That's what the education system needs to do. I agree. That's probably a conservative principle, but it's hard to argue with. Can't we churn out kids that actually have some life skills and some marketable skills. No, I I agree with you. I think that we can definitely do do these things. The problem is that there are too many obstacles, especially when it comes to local government, to try to overtake these these particular Mm -hmm. obstacles, Um, especially if you're talking about in Democrat stronghold urban areas, which if you're talking about uh, predominantly black areas, they're likely in a uh, Democrat stronghold area, getting them to change politically is a major feat because there's just not enough pushback. And you're basically hoping that somebody within the same party is going to be willing to take on, I would I would imagine, a huge obstacle in whatever city it's happening. I always think of Detroit because Detroit is just like the, the most glaring public failure when it comes to a school system 
that is just on repeat, seemingly decade after decade. Well, Detroit is actually, I think, on the upswing. I haven't been inside the public schools. I know some of the top performing schools in Detroit can compete with anybody. And also, we've had a number of private initiatives that has rewarded the students in Detroit. So that is, I think, Detroit's starting to move. But as places, I mean, Chicago, Los Angeles, I believe, are definitely failing the kids. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and one thing, and you write about this a lot, one thing we think about, what does the public sector do? But a lot of times you talk about what about in the home and Mm -hmm. particularly where are fathers and how do fathers play into the nurturing and the, the rearing of children so that they do become responsible adults. And is this part and parcel of the same type of institutional failure Or is it something that's separate? I think it's separate. I think that the issue of fatherlessness is an American issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, The United States is number one in the world when it comes to um, single-parent homes. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, The United Kingdom is number two. But yeah, we're number one when it comes to that. And, you know, as much as we, we look at the disparity when it comes to Black households with a single parent, the reality is that there are more white Americans who are growing up in that situation than black. Mm-hmm. And, and this, is a, this is a growing, growing problem. Why it's happening, I think a lot of it has to do with feminism, uh, modern feminism. So it's not to say women can't go to work or anything of, of that nature. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the idea that women can do no wrong. Uh, whatever decision she wants to make, is it's her decision. All the family planning, it's up to the woman. It's a very misandrous take on the world that men are optional. Fathers are not necessarily important, you know, and I think it's that kind of strong feminist mentality that exists within our society. Does it exist in every home? No. But it's it's enough where it's becoming normal. Right, it doesn't seem uncommon anymore. We all know somebody. We are multiple people who grew up without their father in the house, mm-hmm. um, who grew up with a antagonizing mom who kicked the dad out. You know, so there, we all have some sort some sort of story. You know, my mother didn't want to get married, and she had children with a married man. That's the reality. And you know, so as, as much as my father's at fault, my mom's at fault too you know, for, for making this decision and putting us in a circumstance. But I'm not the only one. I know there's lots of people who in similar situations. And it's okay, right? It's We don't shame this stuff anymore. It's so normal. Why would you shame it? And so basically the adults get to do whatever they want. And especially the moms get to do whatever they want without any sort of harsh scrutiny when it comes to it. But then in the end, the children suffer. And I think that's what I'm trying to highlight for people. I'm not trying to attack women. I'm trying to bring a balance of criticism because we can say deadbeat dad every day of the week, but do we say deadbeat mom? Do we say, hey, mom, that wasn't a good choice? We can't just criticize one side and not the other, right? You can't just criticize Democrats and not criticize Republicans. If you want to have a balanced view in politics, you can't just criticize the dads and not criticize the moms because there's two that created the children. And so we have to figure out how do we bring some sort of balance of criticism? I understand what you're saying, and it really comes back to that 
preparation for adulthood and mm-hmm. that, you know, marriage is hard. Maintaining a relationship's hard. Raising children is hard and doing it on your own is even more difficult. And I don't criticize or condemn somebody that may find themselves in a situation where they're a single parent because, you know, we don't know what their circumstances are that got them there. But Mm -hmm. if it's a lack of maturity, a lack of commitment, you've said it perfectly. It's the child that becomes injured and the child that loses the benefit of having that father or having that mother in the home, of feeling like they're maybe not as nurtured. And I think that when I look at successful people generally and listen to them, who are your influences? Many times it's my father told me this and my mother counterbalanced it with this. My mother mm-hmm. always said this and my dad counterbalanced it. And when we come to some of the conservative voices and the way they're treated in the media, I think of men like Tom Sowell. I'm thinking about Larry Elder from South Central LA. His father was a janitor and raised him with moral principles and enthusiasm for creating something of himself. And yet the left called him a white supremacist during a political campaign. Mm -hmm. That to me is like, okay, how could people actually read that and believe it? That's what I'm not understanding. And then more broadly on the, when we talk about how conservatives are treated in the media, in recent days, we've had the Twitter files released. Mm-hmm. And I'm horrified. I'm, I'm horrified by the fact that we know for sure that the FBI and other agents of our federal government were going to Facebook, Twitter, and other social media and saying, we want you to run this, don't run this. We think you need to tweak this, don't tweak this. And those companies were doing it. So I'm, I am outraged about that. And then I am baffled by the dead silence. Because while this might help conservatives, who were the ones predominantly being stifled. And that to me is like your point about if you're going to criticize one side, you've got to criticize the other. And I think people lose their credibility when they don't criticize what their own team's doing. I think the Twitter files basically just made conservatives feel like, all right, I wasn't crazy. Yeah. You know, because for a while, I, and I remember there were, you know, we had the hearings. Are you, are you censoring conservatives? No, not, we're not doing that. I remember Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I believe she had some sort of lawsuit saying that Google is censoring her. Um, and she's not conservative, but she's, you know, somewhat anti-establishment. And, you know, everyone's like, no, you're paranoid, right? Oh, it's happening to everybody or something of that nature. And even when the first Twitter files was being dropped, I remember someone saying, oh, you know, so what if the campaign you know, the campaign is not the government, you know, they were just right, they were trying right, to right. way to minimize what is actually happening here. And then obviously we're all like, this is Twitter files one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously there's more to this. And when we're making it to, uh, I think we're up to eight, but I believe seven highlights, there's a portal where they're sending requests and they say, you need to get rid of this person, some rando account that made a joke. You need to get rid of this person. You need to do this. And 
I will say this. Twitter did have some hesitancy about some of the things that they were doing. I will say that. But they did it anyways. And I think ultimately, when you have that much power as a social media platform, the deep state will come and start knocking at your door and saying, you either need to play ball with us or you need to give us access. You know, you need to do something because this is a lot of power and this could be very beneficial for us. Indeed. And I feel for the position that the Twitter executives were in. It's the federal government making suggestions. And then I watched the trial balloons um, or listened to the trial balloons about why it was okay. And the one that I, I mean, I literally burst out laughing. Well, Joe Biden wasn't in the government. I mean, he hasn't done anything but be in the government basically his entire adult life, except for a brief period when he wasn't vice president and then before he became a candidate. I don't know how many months that was, but it wasn't very many. And then to say, yeah, all of his contacts all throughout the government structure that he built up over a very long career in the Senate and his eight years as vice president. And the few months he was out, hey, he's just an average guy off the street, so it doesn't count. I I, I mean, the the height of absurdity that there there wasn't undue influence. And some of these things, I like the way you said, it's, hey, I'm not paranoid. It wasn't a conspiracy theory. And I I was watching when Sam Harris said, yeah, we we throttled the Hunter Biden story. And... Mm -hmm. And now it's trying to be shaped as, quote, the well, the Hunter Biden porn picture story. That's not the story. The story right. is 10% for the big guy, okay, mm-hmm. which clearly referring to Joe Biden and clearly some kind of, you know, deals with states that might be hostile actors. And that's the story. Why isn't anyone looking into that? Oh, unless you believe Joe said, I've never talked to my son about business. Okay, you rode back with him on an airplane from China all that time. You didn't talk about that. <laughs> okay, that I mean, that's your story, right? How believable is that? But you know something, Adam, that when I look at the power of what the uh, media can do and where it convinces people, there's always remnants. People want to believe. In fact, I was just on Twitter before you and I signed on to do this podcast tonight. And there are people that still believe conspiracy theories that have long since been debunked, in particular, well, Trump was engaged with Russia. Okay, you don't hear that anymore. But there are mm-hmm. people that are still clinging to that. Um, yeah. That the uh, shooting in Kenosha that uh, with the young Rittenhouse, There are people that still think, oh, he's just a a mass murder that took an automatic weapon across the state line. The case was tried in court and adjudicated. He was ruled not guilty, but they're hanging on to that. there's, There's lots of examples about that. What I don't understand is why do people keep consuming this stuff? And by the way, it happens on the right, too, where Mm -hmm. they get a hold of something and you can't dislodge them. Is Donald Trump playing for you or is Donald Trump playing for Donald Trump? I mean, you just have to look at what he does and, you know, the evidence kind of points in a direction other than he's here to help us. He might be a better choice in some people's mind than the other alternative. But but clearly, the, you know, the guy is really focused on himself and his brand. My humble opinion. I, I, I tend to agree with you on that assessment. But to, to go to your original to your original point, 
I think what ends up happening is people are unwilling to one admit when they're wrong. There's a, a, a high level of hubris when it comes to people in politics, or even just people who are very involved in following politics.、Mm-hmm. You know, it's a team sport, and you know, I'm I'm a Knicks fan, and it's like you'll take that guy who who's at the last of the bench, and you're like, well, he you know he he played all right, <laughs> right? We just lie to ourselves.、Um, there's a reason he's the last of the bench. Um, or the the rookie player that we just picked up as a tenth pick, and he he played so so, and we're just like, I think he has real promise.、Uh-huh. He might be an all star one day. No,、hey, no, he look won't. Anybody that's endured <laughs> the Detroit Lions as long as I have, okay, you can't <laughs> complain about the Knicks. All right, <laughs> right.、Um, but I, but I feel your pain. Okay, so can we, yes, I, I can I can follow you with that. And it's the same thing within politics. It becomes a team sport. And for me, that this is why I left the the Democrat team and have become a free agent,、mm-hmm. right? So so I can look at the market and make critiques of everything that's going on around me because I don't like the team sports, right? When I was when I was playing the team sport,、um, I got fed BS propaganda from my own team.、Um, I got made to believe certain things that I shouldn't believe. I, I followed along a two-year investigation about Trump and Russia, and I, I'll tell you this: this is one of those red pill moments, a small red red pill. When they did the two-year investigation, Robert Mueller, and I remember watching The View and Bill Maher. They were saying Robert Mueller is a Boy Scout. Ah,、oh, he's going to save the day. He's going to show how corrupt. And and Russia got involved in our elections, and Donald Trump was in the middle of it. And then Robert Mueller comes and gives this long explanation, essentially saying nothing. There was nothing there. It was it was never anything there. And I remember turning on the View and listening to Joy Behar say, "Well, Robert Mueller's a Republican, anyways." Yeah, right. Just, exactly right. Exactly. It just moved on. And I said that that was. That was weird, right?、Mm-hmm. That was one of those like weird moments, and I I didn't leave my team then, but I still like I still remember that. I was like, wow, she just like, all right. So, anyways, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly, like, yeah, yeah, like、uh, yeah, and and that's and then again, it's cooking that next narrative. And you know, I brought up Kenosha and Kyle Rittenhouse earlier because it was a case that I followed rather closely, and the man was convicted. <laughs> In the media, he was a bloodthirsty guy that went across a state line with an automatic weapon in places he wasn't invited, where he didn't belong, and he brutally shot three people. That's the story, right? right? What comes out at trial? What was he doing in Kenosha? He worked as a lifeguard for the Kenosha pool. That's where his dad lives. Across state lines, it's like basically lived on the border, you know, so、mm-hmm. that people cross all the time that that do that. But the question I would ask people, particularly my friends on the left, I said, "Look, if you live ten miles from downtown in your town, and you hear that there are people there that are destroying buildings, lighting businesses on fire, and the police are standing down and saying, 'You know what? We're going to do nothing to stop them.'" I go, "Would you want a young man like Rittenhouse on the street?" Well, no, that would never write. You know, let the buildings burn. Okay, 
now that same group of people come to the corner store in your neighborhood and they and they attack the store and they set the store on fire and they light light it now it's two blocks away police won't respond would you like a guy like like young mr rittenhouse there okay mm-hmm. and then all right what if now they're at your neighbor's house right in the next door to you and they're turning your neighbor's house on fire do you want the guy there if the police won't come mm-hmm. now what about in your own land and to watch people adamantly refuse to believe that there was a, a, a an uncontrolled civil disobedience that the young fellow was invited by the people that own the car dealership that the uh, the act that precipitated it was the a fire in a dumpster that was going to go set on some gas tanks on fire and that he went to stop that and there was a guy that had threatened him before came at him mm-hmm. that's what went down and then the next two guys were armed and again I, it's, I think it's american tragedy that any of it happened but when you condone the riot and you tell the police to stand down and the police stand down and it continues to escalate bad things are going to happen and this was a bad thing that happened but it wasn't about some vigilante no, I, I agree with you there. And, you know, um, I've heard from other people, too, talk about how the Rittenhouse trial was a little bit of a red pill for them, too, about the media. Um, there are people who literally thought that Cal Rittenhouse killed black people. Um, oh, yeah. Forgot about you know, that. And I'm just like, what? What are you talking about? Any Anybody, and this goes, Rittenhouse, the Rittenhouse case is one of those kind of litmus tests where I know if someone is just playing team sports or not. Or I'll give them a caveat. They just did not watch the trial, mm-hmm. right? Because anybody who watched any, not even the whole trial, just watch a portion of the trial um, with like significant moments. Let's say when, when they go after certain witnesses, they would see like, hold on a second. This doesn't sound right at all. I'll say, how about this? Don't even watch the trial. Did you watch the footage? I knew that this was self-defense when I saw the footage. I was like, oh, this is this is easy self-defense. And I was actually shocked that it went as far as it did. And, and you could tell the prosecutors just wanted to get some some big win. But this was this was a, the most easiest self-defense situations that I had seen. Because most of the time there is no film of it. Right, right. <laughs> like they had they had drone footage, like they had every angle to see that this boy was being chased, and that every they even free uh, did it frame by frame where he didn't shoot when the guy backed up, and then when he reached for the gun, then he shot him. <laughs> so not only was he under under threat, he had trigger discipline, and he was precise with his shots. Maybe he got lucky uh, under such a tense situation, but like, I'm just like, there, there is no other situation that I've seen involving self-defense where they have multiple angles showing it and they still went through with this. But anyways, I'm just thinking to myself that the, the people who still believe this stuff just refuse to actually look into it. You and I agree with that. And it's it's part of the same narrative. And we could have pulled any one of these 
narratives out. I mean, we can go all the way back to Justice Smollett, mm-hmm. and we can fast forward to our Supreme Court justice being asked, what is a woman? And she had to pretend not to know because mm-hmm. she could, I'm, you know, this is the point of absurdity we've gotten to. And the linkage with the media establishment and the federal government is in a very bad place today. And that's why I really applaud what you're doing, coming and speaking out. Uh, That's why I went over to Substack, and I think we can add our voices to this. Now, after this conversation, nobody's going to hear any of the nuance about neither of us are, you know, in the tank for Trump. No, we're not trying to join the Republicans. We're trying to say is that there's a problem with the political system aided and abetted by the media system that's robbing Mm -hmm. us of the ability to get to policy solutions. And, you know, if you want to think about things, go back 22 years and we, we have a bunch of Saudi Arabians trained in Afghanistan that attack us in New York and Washington, D.C. with airliners. So therefore, we invade Iraq. It's like, what? <laughs> and, and I look at this where we have you know mentally unstable people obtain firearms and create evil with it. So let's go after all the people that aren't doing anything illegal with their firearms and basically prosecute them. Like, what? Why don't we like fix the problem where the problem is? You know, we, as you and I talked about, we have kids that are coming out of K through 12 education unprepared with fundamentals for either the workforce or higher education. And we're again, we're split instead of, look, can we all agree? Let's, let's educate the kids. Cause we, if we spend a year arguing about it, that's a year that a kid lost in school. They're never getting ninth grade back again or kindergarten or third grade or whatever it is. That's mm-hmm. to me where we need to strip away the labels, strip away the insults, and start focusing on problems and getting them fixed. But I wonder if that can happen in this media environment. What do you think? I agree. You know, there are definitely issues that we need to start start looking past. You know, hardline party party politics. I think there are things that both both parties could come together on. The problem is that. For the people who can make a lot of changes within politics, they have no incentive to, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when you fix problems, then there becomes less issues to run on. And no one wants to be that effective, right? I think ultimately, you know, I'm, I don't mean to be like black pill, but I think ultimately this is just going to be a continuous problem. Uh, there's just too much money in politics on either side. Just too much private industry influence. Too much lobbying efforts, lobbying for corporations, not lobbying for people. And, you know, the, the things that we can solve are going to be even tougher to solve because we don't have a special interest group for us, right? That's what the politicians are actually supposed to be our special interests, uh, our special interest group. Uh, but they're not, right? Because they always have to run for re-election. And so they need millions, millions upon millions of dollars. And at some point, they have to take money from people that are actually against our interests as, yeah. as uh, citizens. So it's a it's a crazy system that we're hoping for change from. And there may be some change. It may be slow. And then we may 
go backwards. You know, it's a it's a crazy thing, but I think ultimately people should focus politically more in local politics. People should hold their party more accountable because I think a lot of what happens ends up you vote D all the way down, you vote R all the way down, and you you know you cross your fingers and you hope things work out. But then you vote for the same corrupt people, wondering why, how come we don't get any sort of change? And and that's why. Just because they have an R next to their name doesn't mean that they're in support of what you actually want. And you need to hold them accountable. And that means you have to be able to criticize them. And just because you criticize someone who's on the right, uh, someone who who is um, a, a Republican, doesn't mean that you're a rhino, <laughs> right? You know, everybody's just throwing around rhino everywhere or a deep state actor or controlled opposition, whatever whatever term they want to use, right? You can be a regular American citizen who just wants some accountability from your, your politicians who are actually supposed to serve you. And I think too many people on both sides act as if uh, they're supposed to support the politician. The politicians are supposed to support us, right? We're not supposed to be their fans. And and this is part of the issue that I have when it comes to some of the, the, the Trump fandom. You know, I have no problem with Trump. If Trump is the candidate when it comes down to uh, 2024, it, he's a better option than what the Democrats put uh, put forward. But I'm not going to ignore the level of fandom that exists in our environment that prevents people from saying, hey, maybe Trump shouldn't do this. Hey, maybe Trump is the guy, but could he not do this? We should be able to criticize people that we like. And so I think that's that's my that's my thing that I've been trying to do. Criticizing Republicans doesn't get you on Fox News. Fully understand that, right? But... I think it's something that needs to happen. You know, if we're going to have a healthy political environment, we have to be able to criticize, you know, our own side. Even I'm not a Republican, but I'm I'm on the right. We have to be able to put, uh, um, to criticize people who are on the right. And maybe you do it slightly different than on the left, but you got to be able to criticize them. I, I think I think you landed in a great spot when you said that we need them to be our advocacy group, they need to be our special interest and deliver solutions for us. And there's things that make such good sense. Child tax credit, that makes a lot of sense. People want to do that. Energy independence, that makes a lot of sense. People want to do that. Clean environment, people want to do that. Making sure that all of our kids are educated, people want to do that. And the answer can't be, well, we can't do it the uh, right way or we can't do it the left way. We've got to do it for the people that actually need those services. Mm-hmm. Adam, you're such an articulate guy and such a, a command of the nuances of politics and in media. I enjoy having you on my show. I really appreciate you putting the time in. As we wrap up today, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to chat about? I think that this kind of goes back to what we were just saying about criticizing people on the right. We need to do more of that. And I know it's not a popular thing to do. When I was a Democrat, it wasn't popular to criticize other Democrats either, right? I know it's not a popular thing to do, 
But man, it's a healthy thing to do in a political climate. When I see people who are saying, oh man, I, you know, I don't want the primaries to turn into... No, you do want the primaries to turn into that. You want to see where the flaws are. That's, that's how you get better. And we ca- you can't pretend that any politician is perfect. You can't pretend that. You have to be able to see what, what actually is this person going to do for you, right? And neither, no politician is going to be perfect, but at least you want to know where their flaws are. You want to have good expectation as to how they're going to serve you in public office. And also, I I'm just want to add, I think there needs to be better commentary when it comes to the political right. I see way too much rah-rah, red meat. I see way too much paranoia preaching. Uh, you know, the, we just talked about the FBI being involved with Twitter, right? That is a real thing, right? But I see way too much of the abstract, the deep state, right? Uh, we need to stop the deep state. How do we stop the deep state, right? We need to disband the FBI. Good luck with that happening, yeah. right? Why are you talking about these things, right? And and it's too much. It's too much. This uh, it's like the um, uh, dogma about being the underdog. That that's and, that's that's very true, and I and I love the way you're putting that. Let's let's talk about specifics versus generalities. Adam, any any closing comments as we wrap up here? Um, other than that, take care of your home. <laughs> you know. Uh, raise your kids, um, engage in healthy relationships with people, and have good faith conversations. And I enjoy the good faith conversations with you tonight. So with us, author and editorialist, columnist, Adam Coleman, author of Black Victim to Black Victor, founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. You can find Adam on lots of outlets. Find the Common Bridge at Substack and, and elsewhere. Uh, in YouTube and, and your favorite podcast outlet. And so with our guest, Adam Coleman, this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.